I trust and I pray that it is well with your soul. I'm very grateful for the fact that our well-being in life is not dependent upon horizontal circumstances. Otherwise, I don't think any of us in this room could say it is well with our soul. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, we have a God who is in control of everything. And although sometimes in the moment it doesn't seem like it is, trust me, based on the promises of Scripture, based on how God has acted throughout the human race, throughout the entire uh, history of humankind, God is in control. Everything is falling into place, even though we may not fully understand it in the moment. And so I find great rest, I find great comfort in that truth, and I pray that even this morning, if you did not come thinking that or feeling that, that would in fact be your conclusion upon leaving. Um, I want to encourage you to turn with your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, and uh, for you, those of you who are live streaming, uh, the passage of Scripture will come up for you on your screen, but as you're turning there, I want to just uh, take this opportunity to say thank you to two specific people. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Dave Robert, or excuse me, not Dave Roberts, Dave Walter, because Dave Walter, throughout the entire summer after Jamie Mason and Kim Mason left to Alaska, he took over, uh, he took the responsibility to communicate, to coordinate, and make sure that all summer long we had uh, worship bands up here and making sure that there was uh, less ambiguity and more clarity and less confusion, and he did a superb job. And so I just want to say thank you, Dave Walter, for blessing us. He's been a very faithful servant to Christ Church, and so yeah, we have truly been blessed by him. And I also want to say thank you to my brother, Pastor Mike, for filling in the pulpit here the entire month of August. And uh, yes, you can clap too, that's okay. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, the fact that I can take an entire month off to devote to other things is great. By the way, I was not really on vacation. However, I did get to t- do my uh, annual backpacking trip, and uh, that was a, a wonderful time. I call it my annual therapy, and uh, therapy went really well. And um, yeah, I got to be in God's amazing creation in the middle of the Olympic Mountains, and thankfully we were very, uh, we were, uh, God took care of us, and we had no missteps like some people before and after us. So um, anyways, I am very grateful for that opportunity, but I'm also grateful to be back here, and I'm grateful to bring God's word to you. Even as uh, our brother, uh, Pastor Michel said, he, uh, he says, yeah, it's a difficult passage that we're running into, but it is God's word nonetheless, and it is a very important topic that we address from a biblical perspective. And so I'm actually really excited to bring this topic to you. I'm also aware that there are kids in here, and so I'm going to try to temper my language without being too vague. So please pray for a miracle. Um, I'm going to read for us the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew chapter 19. So read along with me, listen along with me, and then we'll jump into identify the truth and application that, God, that Jesus has for us. When Jesus had finished saying these things, again, the context was he had just talked to Peter about forgiveness and how often do I forgive up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, which really basically means, you know, just continually forgive without ceasing because that's how God forgives us. And so that's the context where we're jumping off here. So when Jesus had finished saying these things about forgiveness, 
He left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the Scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Why then did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples said to him, If this is the case, it is better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. As I alluded to in the very beginning, Pastor Mike had just preached on the subject of forgiveness. And uh, I don't know about you, but even that very day, last Sunday, even throughout the week, I had uh, multiple opportunities to re-engage that subject even in my own life. And uh, no doubt it's a subject, uh, the subject of forgiveness is a topic that we can all, uh, we, would, we would serve ourselves well and those around us well if we revisit it regularly. And no doubt it's a subject that we can all grow in uh, more fervently. I kind of find it interesting, however, that even though Jesus is in a completely different region, again, he leaves Galilee, he moves over to the region of Judea, we see that after this this subject or this teaching on forgiveness, he moves right into this uh, issue of marriage, specifically that of divorce. And of course, the Pharisees initiate this conversation But I can't help but wonder, oh wow, it seems like the Holy Spirit is really doing something here. Uh, We just talked about forgiveness, now let's talk about the most practical application or the most practical context in which forgiveness is best applied. Specifically, marriage. Yet if you survey the divorce rate in our world today maybe even especially under, in Western context, even among professing Christians in the church, you could probably or quickly conclude that the exhortation to forgive without ceasing is largely dismissed. In fact, the reasons that people pursue divorce extend well beyond infidelity or abuse. Now people, for example, at least in the United States, they can pursue a divorce for uh, what we call irreconcilable differences, which is code for we just can't get along because we are unwilling to forgive. Sometimes people say we're better as divorced friends than than, uh, married enemies. Sometimes there's, a, there's a, even a, a way in which you can pursue a divorce called a no-fault divorce. And, and a no-fault divorce, not to put it too simply, but basically 
You can leave just basically because we don't want to be married anymore. This marriage is not as thrilling. It's not providing the happiness I once experienced, so we're just going to part ways. This person that I married is not holding up to their end of the bargain and making my life better and making my life happier, and they are not serving my kingdom, which is basically the point. Therefore, we are parting ways. Pastor Mike even uh, humorously relayed to me this past week because he has lots of these kind of one-liner jokes. He says, I thought I married the ideal person, but soon discovered uh, that I was in an ordeal. So now I'm looking for a new deal. But in all seriousness, the reason for all marriages falling apart can be summarized in one simple statement, and that is the kingdom of self either by one spouse, but usually by both. After all, Christians who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, there cannot be disunity. There cannot be a lack of harmony because after all, the Spirit in one person cannot be disunified with the Spirit in another person because the Holy Spirit is one Spirit. So therefore, if there is disunity, if there is conflict, if, there is, if the marriage is falling apart, there can only be one, there's only one solution to that uh, issue. There's only one w- way to conclude what is really taking place, and that is the kingdom of self. You see, when my kingdom is of highest importance, then you become a primary means for my good, for my comfort, for my happiness, for my well-being. And when you stop making me happy or comfortable or safe or whatever it is, then this relationship is over. And this is really the, the, this is the predominant perspective among the, the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, during, or actually even before, but during the life and ministry of Jesus. The predominant view of divorce held by the Pharisees was this, that they could divorce their, their wife for any reason, even the most petty of reasons. You burn the dinner, bye-bye. You wore your hair down in public? See you later. You're infertile? You're gone. You talk about my mom in the way I don't like? You're definitely gone. You're boring? Bye-bye. It wasn't even big reasons. The Pharisees had a tradition, which I won't go into all the historical uh, background behind, behind that, But they had a tradition that basically, if I was done with this marriage, I could write a certificate of divorce and I was done. And so this is why they asked Jesus in verse 3 as a way of trying to trick him. They asked him this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Again, this was the predominant traditional Jewish view. And I love Jesus' response, right? Almost every time the Pharisees come with a question or a way to try to trick or to pigeonhole Jesus in a certain way, Jesus almost never responds to their question. In fact, I, have a, I can't even recall a passage where he does. He never answers their question directly. Usually he answers their question with another question or, in this case, he responds by establishing a more foundational truth about marriage. In fact, he establishes three truths about marriage. One, that marriage is God's design. Two, divorce is contrary to God's design of marriage. 
And three, that God permits divorce only for two reasons. So let's unpack these truths that Jesus establishes in this text here for us, and let's draw application from his teaching. First of all, the first truth is this, marriage is God's design. Look, listen again with, in verses 4 through 6 of Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separated. Jesus here quotes from Genesis chapter 1 as well as Genesis chapter 2, and we don't unfortunately have the, the time to exhaustively unpack uh, this very important topic, but I, will, I would like to say this in a very uh, concise but blunt way. We're just going to blow through these, but I'm not going to dance around them. I'm just going to state them very matter-of-factly. First of all, we must understand that marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. It wasn't a social fabrication of people with immense foresight. It it wasn't an idea that gradually evolved to what we know it today. No, marriage is a divine idea by a divine creator. Marriage is God's design, in other words. And because marriage is God's design, it can only be defined by God. If, if marriage is God's idea and his design, it, it can only be ultimately defined by God. So the question is, how did God define marriage? Well, first and foremost, as Jesus even quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the first foundational truth of marriage by definition is that marriage is between one man and one woman. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Which means regardless of how society or politics or the state want to justify or distort or even redefine, they have no right because it's not their idea. Marriage is God's idea. It's not open for interpretation. It's not open for redefinition. God designed it. It's his idea. It's his purpose and therefore we conform accordingly. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Secondly, marriage is a one flesh union between one man and one woman. This is addresses really the, the reality that although we might marry into families, for better or for worse, even though we marry into families, the primary responsibility of each spouse is toward and for one another. In other words, this means that parents of kids who are being married, yes, you may have a very active, in, be very actively involved in your kid's life. You may be very actively involved even in their marriage, but you must also understand there are limitations to your involvement. Because that union, that one flesh union, does not include you as, ma- as grandma and grandpa. It is between two spouses, one man and one woman. Thirdly, marriage is a one flesh union between one man and one woman that is intended to be lifelong. 
This is what Jesus says in verse 6, whatever, there God has, whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, and this brings us right to our really our fourth point, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Let me just briefly explain this for us. A contract is an agreement or a commitment that is binding so long as both parties fulfill their end of the bargain. So a contract is, is, is legitimate, but if one party, if one, in this case one spouse, uh, does not uphold their end of the commitment, then the, con- then the contract is null and void. It is dismissed. It dissolves. It's no longer binding on that commitment. But a, but, a, but a covenant is different. A covenant, however, is binding regardless of the performance of the other party. In this case, regardless of the performance of the other spouse. In other words, regardless of any violation that is committed by one person, the covenant agreement still stands. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And when we rightly understand marriage in this way, we are then able to understand the ultimate purpose behind marriage. That marriage is actually a picture of God and His covenant with His people. You see, it's not just something that God says, well, I need to figure out how to get these human beings to kind of cohabitate together, so we'll just do this thing called marriage. No, it's all about a divine plan. God wants us to better understand how he relates to us. And so although we do benefit personally and even within the marriage union and, and, and we're able to, to uh, fulfill, you know, fill the earth, right? And we're able to enjoy one another. But the ultimate and uh, kind of the supernatural divine purpose behind marriage is that we might better understand our relationship with God and specifically how He relates with us. That's why, for example, when you read in Ephesians chapter 5, right? Paul is going into uh, everyone is mutually submissive to one another and he gives examples, kids and, to the parents and slaves to masters and wives to husbands and husbands love to wives as Christ loves the church, all these different examples. But then Paul says this really interesting statement in verse 32 of Ephesians 5. He says, but this mystery, which is the relationship between the husband and the wife, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, translation, marriage is a picture of how God relates to us and how God is committed to us. The point is that the permanent bond of marriage reflects the permanent bond that God has made with you and with me. He doesn't give up on us, in other words. And therefore, the expectation is that we would not give up on one another. Marriage is God's design. It's His idea. And therefore, the second truth is this. Divorce is contrary to God's design of marriage. Divorce is contrary 
to God's design of marriage. Again, verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, brothers and sisters, since marriage is God's design, it's his idea, and by design he's intended it to be a permanent covenant to reflect his covenant that he's made with us, then divorce is a contradiction to God's design of marriage. Let me say that again. Divorce is a contradiction to God's design of marriage. Now, I know we live in a culture today and I know it's commonplace where divorce is just kind of run rampant. And no doubt, every single one of us in here can relate firsthand to the pain and the hurt and the struggle of divorce or we know somebody close who has. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, when we understand God's design of marriage, and that his intent is to, for it to be lifelong, then we can conclude that almost always divorce is sinful. Almost always divorce is sinful. And I don't want to get ahead of myself too quickly here, but even if we have biblical justification for divorce, it still could be sinful for you to divorce. Because perhaps God is saying, even though you have biblical justification to get out of this union, to get out of this covenant, I want you to stay. You remember the prophet Hosea, right? It's amazing how God called certain people to represent God to the people. And and oftentimes, when God raised up a prophet, he did not raise them up just to give words, but they also embodied the message. In Hosea's case, not only did he preach repentance, not only did he preach judgment, not only did he preach what God told him to say very clearly and bluntly, but he also had to live it. And so God, to kind of give a visual, it's like show and tell, God says, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. She's going to be an adulterous wife for you. And your three children are going to be named after the sins of Israel. And all this is a picture of, of how I am committed to my bride called Israel. So yes, you're going to preach a message that I give you, but you're also going to embody a message. And you know what, Hosea? You're going to go back to her, and you're going to go retrieve her, and you're going to go buy her back because she's been sold into slavery. You're going to go woo her back because that's what I do with you. But the Pharisees, they come back with this quick rebuttal, and they say, in verse seven, but 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 didn't Moses didn't didn't he get he didn't did he command one to give a certificate of divorce and to, to send them away? I mean, why did Moses give a why did he give this command to do so? And of course, the Pharisees are referring back to Deuteronomy chapter twenty four because in Deuteronomy twenty four, this is what they're talking about. When can a person remarry? But you got to understand the context of Deuteronomy twenty four. It has nothing to do with divorce. It has everything to do with remarriage after a divorce has already taken place, right or wrong. The point is that we must understand is that nowhere in the Mosaic law does God encourage or command divorce. So if someone were to ask this question, under which circumstances am I encouraged or commanded to pursue divorce? The answer is 
Never. But if someone were to ask, does the Bible permit divorce? The answer is yes. But for only two reasons. That brings us to our third and final truth. That God does permit divorce, but only on the grounds, or, or really for two reasons. The first reason is actually described in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is speaking to uh, a, a believing spouse that is married to an unbelieving spouse. And he encourages prior to the, this, this, this justification here, he says, if you're, an un, if you're a believing spouse, do not divorce your unbelieving spouse. In other words, stay with them. Perhaps God will even use you to woo them into right relationship with God. But if an unbelieving spouse is done, if a non-Christian wants to get out of the marriage, then the person who is, has been divorced is free to remarry. In other words, that covenant is null and void, as if it didn't happen and they are free to remarry and to move on, ideally marrying someone else of equal yoking. The second reason that someone has a biblical allowance for divorce is found here in Matthew 19. And Jesus says this in verses 8 and 9 in response to the Pharisees' question about Moses. He said, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now let me break down a couple of these statements that are said here. First of all, Jesus says, it is because the hardness of your heart. In other words, all divorce reveals the presence of sin. Let me say that again. All divorce reveals the presence of sin by at least one spouse in this marriage who is unwilling to repent or where there's an unwillingness to forgive. Again, marriage is always intended to be lifelong, but if things go poorly, we must understand that it's not because God's design is flawed, it's because we are flawed. It's not because God's idea is a bad idea, it's because we sabotage God's good idea. It's because we have sin that still resides in us. It's because the kingdom of self still is pervasive in our lives. And because of people's sin, they make decisions that align more to their kingdom than that of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, yes, Moses did allow for divorce, but only because your hearts were hardened. And he only allowed it for one circumstance, and that was the case of sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality refers to all kinds of sexual sin, but in this context, the, the context means or refers to that of adultery, which is having sexual relations outside of your marriage union. Now, some people might say, what about lust? Isn't that the same thing as adultery? After all, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 28, if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, they commit adultery in their heart? So is that the same thing? And the short answer is no, it's not the same thing. Because what a person thinks and how, what a person chooses to act upon are two very real distinctions. 
Now, this does not mean that lust is not sinful. Of course it is. And it doesn't mean that if you entertain a thought long enough that you may eventually act upon that thought. But we cannot conclude biblically that lust is the same thing as the actual act of adultery. And to clarify the topic even further, Jesus says this, that divorce for any reason other than adultery actually results in adultery. Divorce for any reason apart from adultery actually results in adultery if that person remarries. So this kind of leads us to the next question here. When can a person remarry if divorced? When is it prohibited and when is it encouraged? We must kind of start this, answer this question in this way. I'm going to start it this way. First of all, we must understand that God is, both, that God is gracious both to the guilty party as well as the innocent party. When you think about God's allowance of even divorce in the first place, even though it has nothing to do with his original design, you see that God is very gracious both to the guilty and the innocent. He's gracious to the guilty because he's saying, you know what, the guilty can give or receive a certificate of divorce for being unfaithful, but they are not allowed to remarry. And at first you say, well, why not? Well, you've got to understand, the Old Testament expectation and law was this. If a person was found unfaithful, the punishment was death. And yet God in his grace provides a different alternative. He actually says, you know what, instead of dying, they can be divorced, but they must remain single from that point on. But they don't have to die. And to the innocent party, to the one who uh, was being faithful, to the one who was, in a sense, the victim in this, in this situation or in this scenario, God is gracious toward them because he says, you are now free to remarry. In other words, this covenant is done, it's null and void, and now you are free to remarry and enter into a new covenant union with another spouse. So the guilty don't have to die, but they must remain single. And the innocent are free to remarry. Now I understand that the moment we start kind of grappling with sinful choices, it gets messy in a hurry. And then the, the difficulty is, as pastors especially, we're kind of like, how do we, how do we, organ, how do we make sense of a messy situation How do we make right what is radically wrong? For example, what if someone remarries after wrongfully divorcing their spouse? Then they are then does that mean they're guilty of adultery? Or what if they have made decisions and kind of in kind of in their past, and they've divorced? for unbiblical reasons and they've remarried and now they're actually in a right relationship with God, what, what about them? Are they, should they divorce their spouse because now they're living in an adulterous relationship? And may I just say this, no, you should not divorce your spouse. Nowhere in Scripture is that encouraged. Nowhere in Scripture would that tell you, like, don't get out of that relationship. But I would say this, repent. If you have not yet repented and, and sought to make amends with your ex-spouse, then you should do so. And in so doing, seek to glorify God in your current relationship. So the question at the beginning of this sermon, which 
is an interesting sermon to come back to after a month being off, is can a Christian divorce? Can a Christian divorce? And the answer to that question, I would say, is this. You're asking the wrong question. If you're asking the question, when is it permissible to me, when when am I biblically justified in divorcing my spouse, then I would say you are asking the wrong question because the question you should be asking, the question that Jesus teaches us here is, what is God's design for marriage? What is His intent for marriage? What is God's heart in all our relationships? Brothers and sisters, when when we have made a decision to follow Jesus, we don't ask, how can I get out of my marriage? Instead, we, we ask, how can I honor God by fighting for my marriage? Remember, divorce is never commanded, nor is it encouraged. It is merely permitted under limited circumstances. But brothers and sisters, please understand, reconciliation is always God's desire because reconciliation reflects God's covenant with us. Reconciliation reflects the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God that God does not unadopt us because of our failure. Thanks be to God that He doesn't divorce us because of our continual and persistent sin. Isn't that amazing? God never gives up on us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And then He says, now as my followers, I want you to go and do likewise. Now as my witnesses, I want you to show the world what my covenant looks like by the way in which you covenant with one another in marriage, in your church, in other relationships in life. As Christians, we have been bought with the, love, with the blood of the Lamb. We have received the ministry of reconciliation. We represent a God who never gives up on us. And may we pursue one another, especially our spouse, in like manner. I love what Pastor Mike said last week and I thought it was very appropriate this morning. He says, there is nothing you can say or do that in Jesus' name cannot be forgiven. That's the attitude, that is the mindset of a follower of Jesus. One who is daily reminding themselves of the gospel of reconciliation that they have received. The worship band can come on up right here right now. As they're coming up here, I just want to kind of say something very quickly but um, importantly. What does that mean as a church family? How do we respond to this difficult subject as a church family? Because no doubt there are people right now, some of you have experienced this firsthand. And you know people, and there's others in our church who have experienced this, have gone through this, and maybe are in it as we speak. How do we respond? What is our responsibility as a church? Let me just say two things very briefly. May we comfort with love and may we confront with truth. Let's comfort with love. In other words, let's be as empathetic because you know what? It is messy 
and there's a lot of hurt, and there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of struggle, may we come alongside, may we comfort with love, especially if things have already been done, and there's, not things, and there's some things that we just cannot reverse, may we be quick to love and quick to comfort those who are afflicted because of divorce, even to the guilty party. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But having said that, may we confront with truth. Can I just say this very briefly, church family? The best way you can love your brother or sister or your friend or whoever it may be is to give them biblical truth. In other words, don't be a yes man or a yes woman. Because people love to surround themselves with people that tell them what they want to hear. What people need, however, is to hear what God says. And so just because you may be close to somebody and they may be going, I'm done with my marriage, I'm so sick of my, my partner, I'm so sick of all these different things, don't be go, yeah, you're right, you should be sick of it. No, you say, what does God say? And how do you fight for your marriage? Because that's consistent with the heart of God. We have a responsibility to that end and may we be faithful to that end.